brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. I'm Ian Scotto. Jack Murphy is here. I'm late and off target today. Army Ranger, Green Beret, Editor-in-Chief of Softrep.com, which I, you know, I try to throw out there every now and again because there's uh, always new listeners every episode. Yeah. So I guess for the people of Philadelphia, congratulations on your victory and... Burning your Yeah, I was going to say being very classy about uh, celebrating. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I lived in Philly for a year in like 04 to 05, and their fans are fucking crazy. Yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time in Philadelphia. Uh, one of our staff writes, or uh, one of our writers lives out that way. Uh, well, James Powell lives in like the New Jersey, Philly yeah. area. I don't know if you mean him. but Yeah. Yeah, so I guess if uh, yeah, if you're an Eagles fan, congratulations. Uh, another story I wanted to mention, though, was this tsunami thing. So today as we're recording this, people got this AccuWeather alert that said tsunami warning in effect for West Palm Beach, Florida until 9.28 a.m. East, source U.S. National Weather Service. And the crazy thing was it even went to parts of New York. So um, Really? Yeah, so like this woman tweeting in Manhattan wrote that she got this on her phone, which is the same thing. Service Maybe she had a, a uh, is it possible she had like a Florida area code? Well, no, this says, this actually says tsunami warning in effect for Greenwich Village, New York. No shit. Yeah, until 9.28 a.m. <laughs> East, source National Weather Service. So, wow. yeah, there's a woman on here saying she got one in Bushwick. So. That's weird. My question is, this is the third time this has happened. It was Hawaii, Japan. And now West Palm Beach and other parts All of the within, country. All within, you know, what, five weeks of each other? Yeah, so I was talking to the Odyssean about this, and my feeling is like, you don't have to be Alex Jones to think something is weird here. Well, that's what me and Danielle were talking about when we had her on, and that, you know, maybe it's just a mistake, maybe it's just an error, but it could be if these systems were hacked that somebody is probing, our, probing the wire, so to speak, that they're testing to see what our responses will be. And then you're also conditioning the population so that when a real emergency text comes through like that, like, hey, the ICBMs are in the air, you just ignore it because you've been desensitized to it. Yeah, which according to the Odyssean, I I didn't have time to look up exactly, so I could be wrong on this, but I think the response for that first one in Hawaii, it was something like 40-something minutes, and according to the Odyssean, the, the response time in Japan was probably under three minutes. So that's pretty... Well, yeah, they're that much more prepared. Than the I'm. Japanese drill for the, they they do like earthquake drills and natural disaster drills all the time. I mean, you can go and see videos like they have the school kids running through it, and I mean the Japanese are pretty tight. Like they have the, they have their act together, you know. I also would think after Fukushima, they don't 
they don't fuck around. I mean, because that was before Fukushima, they didn't fuck around because they had earthquakes, they had tsunamis, they had <laughs> fucking yeah. nuclear bombs dropped on them, which leaves a bit of a memory, right? Yeah. So they always took that stuff very seriously. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, that's even, you know, the only other comparison I could think of. I know in Israel, they have that like text alert yep. if something is about to hit. Um, yeah. And they, I mean, they drill the Israeli, uh, school children and Israeli citizens pretty well too, don't they? I would think as far so. as like fall, uh, bomb shelters. You're looking at me, you're like, you're Jewish, you know, the you've shit. been, you've been to Israel. Aren't <laughs> yeah. You? I was in Israel for 28 days. At, like, I don't think that's, S- I was like 15. I don't even remember exactly. Don't your brothers and sisters <laughs> tell you about this stuff? And no, I'm not uh, part of any secret society. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I, it was, you know, it was a great trip. I, I enjoyed it, but I'm not in the know of any more than you guys of what goes on there. <laughs> um, then the other story to get to is this Russian pilot story. Uh, from the BBC here, Russian media have lauded a pilot killed in Syria as a hero, saying he detonated his grenade to avoid being captured by jihadists who had shot his plane out of the sky. Um, Roman Filipov's reported last words were, here's for the guys. His Sukhoi 25 ground attack aircraft was shot down over rebel, rebel-held Idlib province. Uh, he survived the attack and ejected, but died in a ground fight. Former Al-Qaeda affiliate Hyatt Tahir al-Sham said it attacked the plane. Um, and then it says TV Sved, Svedzida, probably pronouncing that way off, which is controlled by Russia's defense ministry, said the pilot was posthumously uh, presented with the hero of Russia medal, also known as the Gold Star. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting story in a couple of regards. I mean, I... Uh you know, I respect the Russian soldiers who are doing their job honorably. I mean, even though I'm probably opposed to most of the things Russia does foreign policy wise, I understand they're, you know, military professionals doing their job. And if they're doing that, you know, correctly, I don't, I don't, you know, I respect that. But what strikes me about the story that the Russian Ministry of Defense is putting out is how similar it is to another fake story about a Russian soldier that died in Syria, which was happened uh, over a year ago now, was the Russian Rambo. You recall the story about the Russian GRU, uh, military special forces dude, um, who supposedly got isolated, trapped behind enemy lines, um, and he called in, an air, according to the story, called in an airstrike on his own position um, in order to like sacrifice himself and kill all these jihadists at the same time. The whole story was total nonsense. Um you know, I'm sure the guy uh, fought and died honorably, but I mean, then they make up these like propaganda stories. It's like it, it's so uh, like the heroic, dramatic, but fatalistic Russian narrative. I mean, it's quintessential almost. And uh, and this repeats almost the exact same story that the guy kills himself in a heroic sacrifice while fighting jihadists. Um, and I, I've seen the picture of the pilot's body. And I mean, he, he his hands have a uh, black soot on them. It looks like maybe he's been shot. Um, whatever happened, he did not hug a frag grenade and blow himself up. He wouldn't have hands. He wouldn't have a face, if not a head. I mean, I'm sorry to be so descriptive about yeah. this guy, but um, I, I don't buy the story that the Ministry of Defense is putting out for a second. I also would want to know the source of who did he say here's for the guys to. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's so cliched. It's almost like he, he might as well have said, like, this is your fault, America, and then, like, pulled the pin on the grenade and blew himself up. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, thank you, uh, Kremlin. Appreciate that. Yeah, I would just want to, you know, there's no source that says he said that to any, you know, of who he said that to, of who corroborates that. So, 
And, and the story is probably going to get even more outrageous over the next couple of days. And you're going to see like RT, Russia Today, they're going to blow all that up. Yeah. And then I also want to mention Luke Ryan did a story about this that you can check out on SoftRap. Really unfortunate. Uh, 275 Ranger killed in training in Oregon. Uh, Devin James Kuhn, who was 24. Uh, yeah, really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, they still don't totally know what happened. Or, well, I don't know what happened there but i mean it's under investigation it sounds like they're doing some kind of dry fire drills and someone had a round in the chamber i don't know i mean unfortunately you know stuff like this has happened before when um when i was i was in ranger school i was actually in ranger battalion but i was in ranger school at the time of this incident they're doing a my unit was doing a training exercise they had some kids who were in the ranger indoctrination program and the selection program they brought them out to play the op four and what had happened was, you know, uh, Rangers, at least when I was back in the day, we uh, typically would do um, a blank fire drill when we hit like a training objective during the day. And then you would transition to live ammunition and hit it in the day. And then you'd wait for nightfall and then you do it with blanks at night and then blank or then live ammunition at night. So you're kind of it's like the concept of taking baby steps. You know, you're like getting walking into it. Um, or like they call, they call it the crawl, walk, run method, right? You kind of ease your way into the training up until like night live fire drills. So they're transitioning between blank and live ammunition. When they went from day live fire to night blank fire, something got screwed up. Mm. Somebody didn't take all the live rounds out of their magazine. And, uh, when they went in, when they're, when they're doing the objective with, um, blanks and there's no, you know, supposedly no chance of anyone being hurt you would bring in op four role players to play the bad guys so you can see how where this is going um somebody left uh, live rounds in their weapon actually shot one of the role players and uh and fucked this kid up pretty good but no this person didn't die he survived i mean my I, this is what i was told by a medic when i got back from ranger school was that the um it, the bullet actually hit the blank firing adapter that's on the barrel of the gun. The metal rod that's in the in the barrel for the blank fire went and hit this kid. Uh, went into somewhere like his pelvis or his thigh, hit the femoral artery, took off one of the kid's balls. Um, he was bleeding out. The medic came in, put two tourniquets on him to stop the bleeding. Um, and then when they got to the hospital, they they medevac this guy to the hospital, and the doctor told the medic. And this medic who did this told me the story. He's like, the medic said, or the, I'm sorry, the doctor at the ER said, cut the, what the fuck is this? Because they don't use tourniquets in normal medicine. They're like, what the fuck is that? Cut that off right now. And our medic refused. Like, fuck no, I'm not doing that. So the doctor got his people in there, cut the tourniquets off, and he said the kid flatlined immediately. Jeez. Yeah. So, so the medic must have been, you know. It's oh. got to be really strange because you're talking to a medical professional, right? And but you know, our, you're but doing the more practical. Our, thing. Me- our medic had just come back from you know the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003, so our medic had a lot more experience with a certain type of trauma medicine. He probably wanted to kill these doctors. Then the doctor, he was not happy. He was yeah. not pleased with it. Uh, the kid, uh, he did survive, thankfully. He did. That's he true. did make it through that, but. Um, you know, obviously a horrific ordeal for everyone concerned. And, um, you know, that, that's, I don't know what happened with, um, with Devin Kuhn, um, you know, the two seven five Ranger who died, but the story reminds me of, you know, that past experience. Yeah. Do, do you think this happens more often in Sears school? Cause uh, at least in my time here, working Sears at Sears school, rep, 
Well, I, I feel like just in SEAL training. Oh, SEAL training. I thought you said SEER. Well, isn't, isn't, I'm sorry, am I getting my acronyms messed up? SEER is the Survival, Escape, Resistance, and Evasion School, where there's no Which live is, ammunition in that course at all. No, but I mean, I've heard of uh, the drowning stuff that's happened. I just, I've heard more about SEALs dying. Yeah, in, BUDS. In, yeah, BUDS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say. Um, I, I, man, I don't know. I'd have to like compare what the numbers look like. And, you know, I'm sure it's also dependent on relative numbers. Like say the special forces qualification course. I think there's a lot, well, there's, I know there's a lot more people going through that than going through say ranger indoctrination because I went through both courses. Yeah. SF has way more people. Um, it's also probably way, uh, more easy to just drown on accident and there's not as much, I think sure. of that. Do you do any swimming? I don't even know. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we did like a basic, um, uh, like they call it like a combat water survival test, you know. But it, you're not being held like to the bottom of the pool with no, bricks or it's, any of that. It's nothing like what the what the SEAL candidates go through. Not As far as like water is concerned, no, nothing even approaching that. Yeah. So yeah. I would think that that's just a, I, I mean, that's accidents happen. Yeah, accidents happen. Yeah. And, um, you know, Bud's had, uh, had some people drown over the last year, didn't they? There's a couple I don't know if it was accidents. last year, I, but I, I know, like, in my time here, I've heard of a yeah. few of these things happening. And also all, quite a few parachute accidents. I mean, it's a dangerous job, even in peacetime when you're just training. I mean, there's an inherent danger to what these guys do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before we get to Kurt, which I'm really excited for, he hasn't been on in a while, other than, you know, the SHOT Show update, which was pretty short. Um, checking our emails sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. Uh, this is a good one from Kay Ebert. Um, and it's a little bit more complicated, so I'll see if you have an answer for him. Uh, good morning. I am currently a student pursuing a master's in criminology and have been used to writing reviews of journal articles, articles for my classes. I'm also in the process of being selected for the Marine Corps OCC class this June. I'm interested in research articles conducted in the military setting. For instance, Criminal Justice Quarterly has many articles on the militarization of police and policization of the military. I don't know if policization is a word, but maybe. Um, these are often written by civilian academics that do not have prior service. I was wondering if your team knew of any military journals that were research-oriented rather than history-oriented. I would like to address issues such as terrorism, militarism, and international crime using the expertise of peer-reviewed military author data in my studies. Additionally, is there an outlet in Hurricane Group that focuses on military theory and research? Thank you for your time and consideration in answering. Respectfully, Kay Ebert. Um, well, I mean, there's tons of military journals out there if you go looking for them. Um, is there one specifically focused on the stuff he's interested in? I don't, I don't know. Also, the War College puts out a ton of white papers every year. Um, you can go take a look at that kind of stuff, search through there. As far as us, I mean, we don't have a, a wing, a research wing. Uh, yeah. You know, we're not as well financed as, like, the CIA. Even though specialoperations.com has, like, the history. But yeah, not, yeah, yeah. We have, a, we have a lot of, there's tons of history. on but not studies. On SoftRap and on specialoperations.com, there's a ton of special operations history stuff. But uh, we don't have, like, people who are just shift, you know, in the National Archives going through paperwork all day. I mean, no, we, we, can't, we can't afford that. <laughs> It'd be cool. But yeah, no, interesting question. I figured you'd be the person to ask because not only are you former special yeah. operations, you also have a degree in journalism. So No, I don't. I have a degree in political science. Degree in political science. I'm fucking everything up. Well, you are a journalist with a degree <laughs> in political. I was a minor in political science. 
But I was at my my, degree my, in radio. my wife has a master's in journalism. That's right. Yeah. But you met in a journalism course, correct? Uh, no, we met in a, that wrong in a Middle Eastern security strategies course. You did tell me that. Yeah. We were talking about that off air once. Uh, who will hopefully have on soon? Is the documentary coming out of the? Was it the all women's trip to like yeah, Syria? Yeah, it's uh, it's in the editing process. That's cool. Yeah, she, well, it's Syria or it's filmed in three places. It's filmed in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. Nice. Yeah, so she's got a while to. There's still quite a bit of work to do on that documentary, but they're going to get there. So hopefully, I know we have a slot open at the end of the month. Maybe we could fit her in there. Yeah, so. absolutely. That'd be cool. All right, well, with that, back on the podcast for the first time in a very long time is uh, Kurt Schroeder. I mean, I shouldn't say a very long time because you were on the SHOT Show episode, but the last time you were on a full episode um, was actually 2.14. Um, To give you some background on those who don't know Kurt, Kurt recently became full-time at the site as a writer, former Marine, volunteer fighter with the Peshmerga, and I was also going to break your balls because you need to update a, uh, you need to put a bio on your name. Like all of us have a bio on SoftRep and you don't. Yeah, I was, I brought that up uh, to uh, uh, <laughs> I'll the, the, Odyssean, the Odyssean the other day. So he just needs to come <laughs> yeah. out of the fucking closet because I'm tired of this charade. <laughs> <laughs> we keep screwing it up. Oh man. It is funny though. You see that's, and that's why we can't do a live feed. You were like, do a live feed with this. <laughs> uh, you actually, uh, mentioned, uh, James Powell as Jason. And I won't say his last name. So I, I, this is confusing. You, well, I texted James Powell and I was like, are you cool with, uh, J- Jack saying your name just before I put this up. He was like, yeah, you can say Jason, just not my last name. So I was like, all right, I'll edit it out. But oh, we used his last name in the past. I, I know, I know. I guess maybe he, from now on he wants to be, like, secretive. All right. None of, none of, well, actually, you do write under a code name, Kurt, which I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah. And I, I won't reveal your real name, which is that of a famous actor. <laughs> you already given clues, Mike. <laughs> Famous black actor. Is it Tom okay. Cruise? <laughs> well, he's not black. Um, anyway, man, I guess the, the first thing to get into was you wrote this article about Turkey attacking the Kurds. You wrote the article, Kurdish fighters kill two Turkish soldiers over the weekend, um, which people could check out. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I guess the... Well, I'll start with the other one because it's kind of a go-over, but... Uh, so yeah, two two more fighters were killed. I believe it's they're up to sixteen total Turkish fighters, uh, like eighty six Free Syrian Army fighters, and a hundred and seven or something YPG fighters have been killed at this point in the the new, renewed conflict between uh, Turkey and the uh, the Free Kurdish region or what they would call Rojava, Syrian Kurdistan. Do you want to explain a little bit um, about Afrin? Because there's three cantons in Rojava, and I know we've talked about them on the podcast before, but just to kind of like jump people's memory a little bit, um, you know, where Afrin is, it's, you know, geographical location, why it's important. Sure. Okay. So uh, the the three main cantons are Afrin, Al-Raya, and... Uh, Tel Rafat, I think, and then I'm not actually I'm not is not as familiar as probably you are, but um, Efren itself is is pretty important because it's right along the Euphrates, um, as I understand it. Or am I wrong there? Yeah, well, the Euphrates cuts between Kobani and Afrin cantons, right? And uh, Efren itself is uh, right up against the Turkish border. Um, so uh, I, I'm and there's there's a bit of a some cultural relevance there of just 
general hatred between the Turks and the Kurds, and uh, as well as uh, land land view, views of land ownership um, resources. Uh, as I understand it, Afrin is has some of uh, the biggest uh, oil deposit, or excuse me, largest oil deposits in um, in uh, northern Syria and what is still considered the uh, Kurdistan. So I don't think they want to give that up for resource reasons. And why do you think the Turks are pressing this issue now? I mean, it's not the first time that they've gone into northern Syria, but now this is a renewed offensive. Sure. Um, I, I think the renewal is really just – it's it's all timing um, because they didn't want to have to deal with so many things. Like one, now they're able to task the Free Syrian Army as uh, mercs for them, so to speak, when before they would have been tied up fighting the Islamic State. Turkey was tied up fighting the Islamic State. There's a lot more coalition involvement in the region. And I, I think they just waited for it all to die down uh, after the ISIS conflict before making their move. I mean, some of the FSA guys were always, um, you know, Turkish patsies, weren't they? Yes. Uh, and and it's, that's a weird one. You probably know a bit more about them than I do. But because uh, they, they were uh, – the, the new Free Syrian Army was the one you wrote about and that was the one that was a CIA-funded program. The new, no, the new Syrian Army was uh, – that was a DOD program. Uh, okay. Yeah. So this is yeah, yeah. And this is where it gets complicated because you had groups like that um, and also the YPG – and the YPJ, DOD worked with them as well. We had special forces and, and Delta Force operators over there. Um, but then you had Free Syrian Army, quote unquote, different FSA elements that were part of CIA programs. So now with ISIS out of the way, what we're seeing is proxy forces trained by the CIA and the Pentagon fight each other. <laughs> right. And that's another article I did where uh, – well, it was it was more of a, an observation uh, kind of a, rather than a, a really in-depth look at it but because um, it's a very – as you just said, it was very complicated. Um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of ironic that we have uh, two of the, the groups we trained in the region that now that they don't have a common enemy, they're like, well, I guess we'll fight each other. I guess we all saw that coming as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. ISIS was like the unifying force that <laughs> – well, I, I right. shouldn't even say that. There is never any unity in Syria. That's the right. last word you want to use, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so where do you see things panning out in Afrin? I mean what, what's going to – where is this going to go next? Well, the Kurds aren't going to give up a foothold and – Turkey's not going to let up either. Um, I also don't see a whole lot of uh, investment by the coalition until it really starts to affect them. I mean, because if, if you think of it in resources, like I said, there's a lot of oil up north. If Turkey gets it, well, they're a NATO ally, so we still have access. And if the Kurds keep it, then we still have access to that, and, and just in terms of resources. Well, it's, um, it's also worth noting here, too, that Afrin was – see, we only supported the Kurdish offensive – um, on the east side of the Euphrates. Um, we went and did the Manbij offensive, but there was, we were never going to keep our forces on the other side of the Euphrates. So we never really supported Afrin um, in any real like material way. Um, and that kind of has left the door open. Um, you know, at one point, the Russians were providing airstrikes for the Kurds in Afrin because at that point they were fighting ISIS and other bad guys. Um, right. But this is because we never went into Afrin, we as Americans, that kind of has left the door open for Turkey to attack. Like the Turks can't go and attack the other cantons because there's American troops there. Right. 
and uh, and the you know Department of Defense and Rex Tillerson at the Department of State, they've all said like we might actually make permanent bases here. Well, I mean, it would make sense too because I mean, uh, you can kind of see that playing out because they are as of right now, our only real staging point in the Middle East is Turkey. And, yes. and I, I, I feel like our long-term goal was kind of in backing the Syrian Kurds was like, hey, yeah, we're going to – we want a presence here because Syria is like – that's perfect. That's uh, That puts us in range of a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Turkey would be important. And you have to remember that this is on the minds – in the back of the minds of people in the Pentagon is that in Sirlik is where we allegedly have nuclear weapons stored in case you know something popped off. And also that Turkey would be a, a pretty um, big staging ground if we ever did go into, go to war with Iran or who knows what other bad actor in the Middle East. So, right. yeah, I don't I don't know if. Yeah, you have to wonder what the strategic thinking is. Um, are they really thinking like, oh, we're going to move our logistical hub from Turkey to northern Syria? Like, I don't think <laughs> we're that, I don't think we're that far along with anything. But no, what no. what I, in my opinion anyway is I think it's an attempt at strategic ambiguity that we're going to keep troops there and it keeps every all the players in the region off base. Like they don't really know what to think. They don't really know what our next move is going to be, and that's kind of the intention. I think. That's uh, that's uh, I, I think that's actually a very smart way of looking at that. <laughs> that. My my two cents anyway. I'm sure other people have differing opinions. Time will definitely tell. Yeah. <laughs> and and then another thing I wanted to get into with you um, that I thought was interesting, and you wrote an article about Peshmerga has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. You wrote an article about this. Um, where it talks about Himanshu Gulati, a lawmaker for Norway's Progressive Party, um, making the nomination, saying the Peshmerga have been crucial to the fact that we have been able to fight ISIS, which I believe is the greatest enemy of humanity. Without the sacrifices of the Peshmerga, victims of the front line of the ba- on the battle against ISIS, ISIS probably would be bigger and more powerful than they are today. Um, and then you were kind of joking about this with me yesterday on the phone. You were like, if they get a Nobel Peace Prize... Do I get a fucking Nobel Peace Prize? Because that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> uh, no, uh, it was funny because, uh, well, I mean, one, it's it's um, I think it's excellent for the uh, uh, they they should be nominated because the Peshmerga, you know, fought and bled and did uh, a lot of good things and a lot of uh, put in a lot of manpower and time into fighting ISIS in their uh, their region. Uh, you know, it is interesting that they haven't. He, he didn't mention the Syrian Kurds because I feel like they have done uh, as much a part as the Peshmerga have. And they were, also, so. they were also a unified front from all the way down in Kirkuk, all the way up north through the KRG and then across the border into Syria. Um, and that that front ended, you know, over where Kobani is because uh, Afrin and Kobani were geographically separated. There were a bunch of bad guys in between them. But they, right. the, the Syrian Kurds and the uh, Iraqi Kurds had a unified front. I just want to point that out. Right. Yeah. And they, uh, they held their own. I mean, they took some fallbacks initially with, uh, what was it? Sinjar, uh, when they lost the hilltop, but then they went back and took it, retook it. Um, and they got pushed back a little bit in Kirkuk in, uh, at the end of 2014 during the initial attacks and then went back and repushed them back again. And they, and it's important to remember because, you know, uh, quite some time amount of time has passed, but uh, they were the only ones who were like kicking ass while the uh, Iraqi army was getting pushed back. 
city by city. Yeah. Like not even, not even just like battle, but like city by city made in the Ambar province. So, I mean, the Kurds really did hold their own considering they, we, they had almost no coalition support or very little. Um, and we're just, it was just them and like their, their bands of politically affiliated, <laughs> uh, grunts, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, they, I think they did well anyway, but I do think, yeah, it's, uh, I will. See, it'll be. It remains to be seen if the nomination goes anywhere. But um, it is an interesting development. Uh, yeah, I was joking though. I was like, so <laughs> if uh, all the Peshmerga <laughs> get a get a Nobel Peace Prize, does that mean all the volunteers do too? Or, <laughs> but uh, not likely. <laughs> I, I was going to say for those who you know haven't caught up with like the earlier podcasts, you want to you know just briefly give a background of going from being a U.S. Marine to volunteering with the Peshmerga because. I think that's pretty interesting in itself. You you always see these like keyboard commando types. Yeah, like, I'll go over there and fight, and you actually did it. I got my ISIS hunting permit on my truck. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh man, the ISIS hunting permit. Yeah, no, actually, there's quite a few of them around up where I live. Um, <laughs> so Ryan, yeah, Ryan Zinke um, actually gave them out when he was running for Congress. I know he like gave one to Wilkow. Oh, that was oh, nice. Wow. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, uh, got out of the Marine Corps in 2012. Um, I'm a four year Marine, uh, have a background in logistics. Um, I went to college for a little while and while I was in school, um, the Islamic state, uh, you know, they took Fallujah and that was the big one cause it was all over the news. Um, and this was, you know, post, uh, Libyan revolution and the war in Syria could already kind of started to go. Um, and they just started getting traction. Um, and at one point, so I, I knew I wanted to fight. Um, and I guess the first thing I saw was, uh, footage of, uh, the French foreign legion fighting in Africa or in Mali against Islamic terrorists. Uh, and, um, <laughs> so, uh, I decided that's what I was going to do. I, uh, I bought a plane ticket and went off to France. Um, and got there and did not make it, <laughs> which was kind of a pain in the ass because, I mean, I flew all the way. It went all the way to France, like on my own, went down to Oban, wow. like handed a passport, and uh, I got turned away later um, and went back home, <laughs> kind of defeated. And then it was weird because I didn't really have any direction and out of nowhere, I had already hit them, uh, messaged them. The Lions of Rojava got back to me and said, hey, brother, here's what you need to do, this, that, and this. So I – uh yeah, I uh, did what they told me to do, got my plane ticket, um, was about a week from going out, uh, like flying to Suli, and a Peshmerga group of foreign volunteers messaged me back finally and said, hey, when are you going to get here? And I'm like, oh, in a week? I already got like plans with the YPG. He's like, no, come to us. And um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then next thing you know, I was with the Peshmerga, uh, totally different course. Um yeah, showed up uh, in Kurdistan, stayed for two years, hopped around to a couple different units, um, uh, did some private security stuff uh, in Iraq uh, here and there, um, and uh, did a little bit of time in Ukraine, and now I'm a journalist. <laughs> yeah, now Kurt's working for us, writing full time. Yeah, and you've said it before, on, and I know Benny has, like YPG and Peshmerga, very different politics. Um, depends. Well, Kurt, why don't you, before we even get to that, that's a good point, Ian, but before we even get there, Kurt, why don't you break down the difference between, because there's basically 
two Peshmergas, and people don't realize that at all. Mm. When you say okay. the Kurds, people are just like, okay, the Kurds, as if they're one single entity. <laughs> I know that's the hard part. Like, it's hard to like get into the stuff and tell people, oh, I was with the Kurds, and like not be like, well, let me break it down for you real quick. There's <laughs> two two nationality or two nationalities, one ethnicity, five or five hundred different political parties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so with the Peshmerga, and this is where I'm glad you're getting into this because Syria, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm okay with Syria, but this is where I specialize, obviously, because I spend a lot of time there. Um, so with the Peshmerga, there are two major political parties, the PUK, which is the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. And uh, they have traditionally seen more Iranian support, I would say. Um, it's hard. It, you know, it's 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 loose, but it's there. Um and then you have the KDP, which is the Kurdish Diplomatic Party, and they are uh, a bit more rightist, would you say, Jack? They're more capitalist-leaning, for sure. Yeah, um, and they have uh, they have a decent t- uh, decent ties with Turkey, and they're the ones who are really, uh, I would say, doing the legwork in as far as communicating with the Iraqi government within the Kurdish regional government, which both these po- uh, parties belong to. Um, and then there are actually Peshmerga units that are strictly affiliated to these. And actually, that's a very interesting uh, thing where what's going on right now is that the KRG is trying to nationalize the Peshmerga. Oh, really? And turn it into a, yes, they're trying to turn it into a federal force and unite all these different sub-political brigades and unify them under one uh, banner. And um, like, yeah, like the first uh, and second brigade. Just it, they want to but, include like the Zaravani and all of them in it? I think they're that's the end goal. Um, the uh, also the Goron party. While I was there, um, they uh, they joined up with the PUK like officially. Oh really? Actually, I didn't know. Actually, Gor- Goron was the uh, like the Peshmerga political party, wasn't it? Yes. Oh man, I'm not I'm not as good with the sub parties because they're kind of like they really don't matter. <laughs> it's yeah, a script yeah. To say, but they literally have no say. They're just kind of like the annoying kid in the room that sometimes sides with. The, the two big big ones. Um, uh, but uh, they did. And that's exactly what happened. They joined up with the PUK while I was there. Actually, the ceremony of the Goron political leader and uh, them joining up happened at my uh, brigade's uh, chow hall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I walked by. I was walking by like on my way to the, the Kurdish PX, the Peshmerga PX. And I was like, what's, I saw the sergeant major of the brigade stand aside. I'm like, what's going on in there? And he did like the, the pantomiming of his hands of Goron, uh, PUK, and did like the hand together thing. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> Do you <laughs> think, like, uh, will that be a good thing if they federalize the Peshmerga? Because, I mean, the way it is now, it's almost as if, like, imagine if in America there were two armies. The Republicans had one army and the yeah, Democrats yeah, yeah. had one army. That's exactly what I used to compare it to. I was like, how bizarre would that be? Um so yes, I do because people forget before ISIS uh, and before the Iraq War, they had a civil war where they legit PUK and KDP were killing each other in the streets. Yeah, in the nineties, um, right? The, yeah, the uh, the actually the brigade, brigade uh, the brigade general of the last unit I was with, uh, under orders from Talibani, went down to uh, Suleimania and uh, slit the governor's throat like. <laughs> And his wife like murdered his the the governor's wife and like yeah straight up like uh, during the civil war and that's why he's uh, like right hand general to uh, 
Kasul Rasooli, who is uh, essentially the vice president of the PUK. Um, wild stuff. So yes, I do believe that unification is something they need to do if they want to progress as a nation and really climb that ladder. Because um, right now, you know, the the more unified they uh, uh, they are as the Kurdish autonomous region of Iraq, the more uh, pull they're going to have with the international community, Iraqi government, you know, they become uh, reputable, I think. It seems like it's going to be pretty difficult to do. I mean, Barzani doesn't seem like he's really reached across party lines. Sure. No, and he's not favored by anyone. Um, Nir Shervan, is, uh, which is his son, is uh, now the current, um, I want to say the current acting president of Kurdistan within the KRG, or at least he's the, the prime, uh, one of the, one of the major prime ministers, their governmental system is a little, uh, a little hard to wrap my head around at times, but it's still very similar to, uh, you know, the structure of, uh, ours with these family dynasties. Yeah. Well, we, we used to say they're like, it's like the mafia. Yeah. Like you, you literally have associates and right-hand men, loyal people, like, you know, made men who are like guys like, that general I just spoke of who went down and like killed the governor on orders. Like those are like, you know, and it's like this hierarchy and then, you know, it's weird. It's weird. You definitely see it within the ranks, like down the lower ranks. Like if somebody, if one of the Peshmerga, it doesn't matter if his squad leader or his NCO is however many years in the Peshmerga and has rank. If that kid under him, if his uncle is somebody important within the party, it doesn't matter. He'll be like, yeah, yeah. Half right face, bitch. You know, like he won't care. Yeah, I, I remember uh, a friend of mine telling me he was going to go and set up. He had linked up with a um, with a local, with a Kurd, and they were pitching a business deal. They were trying to do some business with like the Kurdish Ministry of Defense or something like that. And the deal didn't go through, even though it would have been great for really all parties concerned, except for one thing. The concern from these higher ups in their defense establishment was that if they agreed to this deal, the Kurd this American was working with, his family would come to have more power. And now you don't <laughs> want that because now you're upsetting the hierarchy. Right. Uh, interesting. Yeah. It's just a, a totally different way of doing things than here in the U.S. of A. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny because like that – uh, and on our level, that would be viewed as insane amounts of corruption. Yeah. But they, but there, that's just how they do business. There's nothing. They don't. There is no like, you know. It's funny. That's one of those things. Like of being like a foreign volunteer, you got to go over and cater to their cultural relevance, just like in anthropology or something. Um, you know, you have to take away your your system and kind of look at it from theirs. And it's like, well, you know, I could be like, wow, that's really screwed up, or I could be like, well, you know what? That's how their culture's been doing it for generations it's not weird to them that's just the way it is yeah you're not going to change it anytime soon right right (laughs) it's interesting as americans we often we don't see those like relationships and in foreign cultures the relationships between people seem to mean a lot more uh, abroad than like in america it seems like the business relationship is more important but in foreign Mm -hmm. countries oftentimes the familial relationships are even more important Oh, I would say exponentially more so. Yeah. Um, that's which is why, you know, and another thing as a foreign volunteer, you literally like the majority of your time is spent building rapport and relationships with people because um, it's going to get you further. It doesn't they don't they care about who you are and what your capabilities are, but more so about who you are as an individual and how you treat them and, you know, what you can do. 
even in uh, in Europe, I mean, like doing business in Europe. I mean, I, I think we've talked about this in the past. I mean, it's just so different than the United States. Personal relationships mean so much more than they do here. Yeah, I uh, I, I could see that as well. Uh, definitely. In America, we, we do things like kind of by the seat of our pants and, you know, huge amounts of money change hands on a handshake. Yeah. Happens sure. all the time. Capitalism. <laughs> Chalk up another win for capitalism, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Why change it if it works? Yeah. 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 I always say that, ca- you know, for people who do bash capitalism, I feel like it's just a natural order of things of just, you know, I'll trade you this for this amount of money and to not have some bureaucrat in charge of it all. Well, yeah, to me, it's better than having like royal families and shit like that. Yeah. Like, you know, you're like living in the times of like the sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood, you know. Sure. I, I don't want to deal with all that. Which, you know, to get to the political side of things, that probably conflicts with the whole Peshmerga thing, you know, their their views on capitalism. Well, it's look, even even the communist Chinese have embraced capitalism to an extent. Yeah. Right. When it works to their advantage. So there's a whole field called political economy, which it says that economics isn't just about tick marks and a ledger that it's also about the um social aspect it's about the bureaucrats the families whoever has access to these pools of resources and if you want to access those resources it's not just about the numbers it's not just about the currency it's also about the personalities who control those resources so to get to those resources you have to go through the person and the person isn't going to help you unless there's something in it for them yeah so it's just one way to study economics I mean, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I was just seeing a card at anything. Oh, no, I, uh, yeah, definitely. That's a little out of my uh, specialization, but uh, definitely, yeah, makes sense. And uh, last thing to get to is that I hear you're working on a memoir, which should be pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was kind of voluntold, but no. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I'm getting ready to write a book. Um, it's, uh, it's nothing official yet. I'm still waiting on, uh, the, the contract, but, um, yeah, I'm going to do a, uh, pretty much a memoir of the, the start of how I, uh, began the, the journey to Kurdistan and everything that happened from there or up until the, the departure. I think um, that'd be a pretty good read. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm right now I'm leaning towards more of a first person perspective with a little bit of reminiscing, reminiscing from that perspective as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I've been taking notes. So, I mean, I, I you know, it's weird cause initially I had always said I was never going to write a book and then it just kind of, I don't know now it just kind of happened. So yeah, I you, felt the same way. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I know someone in a similar predicament sitting oh. in front of me. I, uh, yeah, you'll see too, Kurt, once you sit down and start writing this thing, it'll just kind of flow off the page. You know, like I've been writing about, uh, uh, recently about this deployment I was on with fifth group in 2009 and and even the other two deployments I wrote about in this, in this book, like I thought like, oh, you know, I don't have that much to say about any of that. And then like the second I sit down and I start writing, it's like page after page after page. And like, I actually, I do have a lot to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, uh, I, well, I've, we, we've gotten a bit of a sneak preview of some of your, uh, your, uh, work on the, the book and, uh, oh, yeah. I'm excited to read it. Yeah. I shot some of it over to you guys. Um, yeah, I'm still working on it. And, and as I write the, like the more stuff I remember, like I actually on the subway on the way here today, I remembered this whole story about, uh, some of our interpreters and I'd like to tell their story a little bit of it. 
and uh, we were teaching English to this one of our Terps. It was, see, so we hired him as an interpreter, but really he just cleaned up our mess on the base after <laughs> us. Um, <laughs> and we called him McLovin. That was his nickname. <laughs> and dude, I, I, he actually hit me up in the comments. McLovin <laughs> did? Yeah, yeah. I was like, dude, I – oh, no, it was on the live feed with Irwin. I was like, McLovin, where do I – or whatever. Where do I – no, it was uh, his real name. I was like, dude, where do I know you from? And he's like, you call me McLovin. I'm like, oh, Jack talked about yeah, you right off, Yeah, McLovin man. is the man. And yeah. uh, so we were teaching him like these – he learned English very, very quickly, very intelligent person because he was picking it up just from listening to us. Um, but then we taught him all kinds of shit that probably we shouldn't have. <laughs> um, and so like one day, uh, you know – he was throwing out trash in the dumpster outside our compound. And some like first sergeant from the military police unit saw this like Iraqi unescorted walking around by himself. And was like, who the fuck is this guy? And he goes up to him. He's like, Hey, Hey, who are you? And McLuffin looks at him. He's like, who am I? You want to know who I am? I am the grand shake of a uh, pounding vag. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh. Holy fuck. <laughs> <laughs> dude wow yeah that's, it's a grand shake amazing. of pounding vag um but anyway him he was a yazidi um so was his brother who was a legit interpreter for us you know okay, actually cool. doing the job and uh they came to america them their wives their kids they all came to america before isis went down and it's like thank god because awesome. their their extended family got wiped out Holy like shit, they, they like cousins aunts uncles fathers grandfather that they don't know what the fuck happened to those people mm. they, they're they're probably i mean sadly they're probably in a mass grave somewhere oh it's fucking terrible it's fucking yeah. it's fucking horrible that, I, you know and that comes back to that you know why they're trying to give a group of kurdish fighters the peshmerga specifically the Nobel peace prize is it when they when he spoke about ISIS being that evil again like anti humanity like the yeah. antichrist like the fact that they were in this day and age you know rounding up entire groups of people village whole villages and just putting them in mass graves you know it's just yeah sh- and it, it's uh it, it, the way the press refers to ISIS too they would call them they're like barbaric they're out of the Middle Ages you know all this kind of stuff like it, there's this temporal displacement. But really, if you think about it, it's not out of the Middle Ages. This shit happened just now. <laughs> so right. what, what does that really tell us about the world that it's not out of the Middle Ages? It's not some, uh, you know, these ancient barbarians. This is happening now. And maybe these attitudes, these approaches, these ideas are not as far and away as we think. Do you think it's just that some would argue that, you know, the the initial values of islam are they're using something from a time period ages ago even then i mean it's kind of debatable i mean at well, different points and and, and uh, you know they they constantly try to use the quran and sharia as like the guideline like we are you know we are enforcing sharia law and we are you know everything we do is in the quran every you know <laughs> like 80 percent of the kurdish people are muslim uh, and literally they would sit there like, ah, oh, Mr. Mr. Kurt, he's like, dash, and, and no Muslim. And, and, you know, basically they'd always say something to that effect. Yeah. Like, and even they know they're just full, they're just using it as a, a scapegoat to be a group of psychopaths. Yeah, it's and, just a vehicle. Yeah, and it, but it's weird. Like then you got to start asking. So if there isn't – if that really isn't the great unifier, what – 
what has drawn this collective of mass murder? Like that's it's insane. Yeah, especially in an age of like you said, it's not out of the Middle Ages. Everybody in Iraq has a cell phone, not just a cell phone, but a fucking smartphone, an iPhone six, uh, a whatever. They could be living in a mud hut and they have one. Yeah, it's it's common now. Like so, in an age of information and you know technology, this is still happening. What well, yeah, what attracts all these young people to go and join ISIS and? do all this crazy shit, beheadings and raping women and filling up mass graves. I mean, what the fuck? Like there were people who traveled from all over the Middle East to participate in this kind of shit. Yeah. There were more foreign fighters going to ISIS than there were to the Kurds. Yeah. <laughs> like we were outnumbered. We, we were estimated as far as foreign fighters go, I think to be like a couple hundred. And ISIS was had like, what was it, like 10,000 foreign fighters at one point it was estimated? It seems like I mean, it, there's like not this, more than the Western world, but, you know, still international community. You know, for sure, there's a perversion of religion that carries the water for these idiots and makes them and, and they try to make themselves sound virtuous. And, you know, God is on my side. I'm sure, sure poverty plays some role and that there aren't other opportunities for these guys. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I got that. But there's also like this this element of just like it seems like they're like angry children, you know? Yeah. And they don't yeah. have anywhere else to express it. And, uh, and, and someone made a comment to me and, and they said, you know, it's really weird to think about the concept of going war to have sex, but that's actually what it was about for a good, or at least that's partially what it was about because this was like the way these guys could access women. You know, you get, <laughs> your, you get yourself an ISIS bride, you get to rape girls and probably back in their slum in Egypt, no one was ever going to marry them. No one would ever give a fuck about them. So this was like their way to actually have sex with women. That's a really weird thing to think about. And I, I don't think yeah, you could I, I don't know how to quantify that. Like how big a role did that play in the conflict? Sure. I think it's in there for sure. I yeah. don't know. Like you said, I don't know how we could quantify as far as the percentages go. But I definitely think things like that. Like, And I'm sure there were, it was a multi. I mean, what about all the... Uh, you know, the Eastern European or not, excuse me, Western European kids, uh, girls going over to be ISIS brides. Yeah. 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 This, the Australian kid who went over at like, what was he? 16. Of course they stuck him right in a, a V bed. Cause <laughs> like literally he had been there a week and they said, yeah, go blow yourself up. I mean, what, are, I mean, that that's was the what thing. They, what that's gonna, what they did with what, most of the foreigners. They used them as well, suicide bombers. Well, that's cause they were all stupid civilians. Like, what are they going to do with that? As a military power, what would you do with some, pissed off teenager who has no military training never even shot a rifle before he's not a fighter he's not one of your top commandos You're gonna send him as a you know he'll do more damage in a v-bed than he would uh, on the front line yeah yeah you find some way to get rid of him which yeah. is uh propaganda propaganda you know and that reminds me of yeah the whole propaganda thing reminds me of we've talked about this on the podcast before how there's always this big cry to end Guantanamo to let these guys, you know, not be uh, a part of this prison that we have in, in Cuba, but it's never going to happen because every single Congressman is like, you're not going to release these guys into my district because these guys are going to radicalize just regular prisoners who are in there. It's going to continue spreading this message to people who are hopeless, people who have no purpose in yeah. living. 
Yeah, and a lot of the people who are, I don't know a lot. I mean, we can actually find out what number, but there is there is a, a not insignificant number of Gitmo inmates who have been released and went on to become suicide bombers. Yeah, is that surprising? <laughs> yeah. Well, what was it? When we did when we traded Bergdahl for those five guys, like three of them, like within a couple months, were top ISIS commanders so or something there, like that. There is a huge backstory to that. Um, that I found out and I would love to write this story someday and maybe I'll just go ahead and blast it out there. Um, the gist of it, those guys we released for Bergdahl, we did not release them for Bergdahl. It was not a trade. That was a huge disinformation campaign that the state department and others ran to fool the Taliban, or I'm sorry, to fool the Haqqani network into giving up Bergdahl. Those guys were, they were scheduled for release anyway. And they would have been released regardless of what happened. Wow. It was basically, yeah, it was a trick to make the Haqqani network feel that they weren't going to get these dudes back unless they released Bergdahl. You got to get that out there because I have I've never read about this. Maybe you never will. (laughs) So write it. It, it, Well, to get the people to, you know, get all the right sources and to get the people to uh, to go on the record, it's difficult to do. Yeah, I'm sure. And it's one that that would be one of many stories that um, I'm already working on a on a big story right now. You know, it's funny. I know so many people listen to this podcast who are at like the New York Times and different, you know, because they follow us on Twitter. Just different other journalists. You know, yeah, they're listening to journalism. Like, oh, oh. That's exactly what I'm thinking. That they're going to get on this. So if you don't write it, someone's going to write it. Yeah, I mean. It's or they're going to take an excerpt from this show and put it up. Sometimes it's like you lead a horse to water and they still don't know what to fucking do with it, you yeah. know? And, uh, I mean, the New York Times does some good work sometimes, but, like, especially when it comes to their writing about the intelligence community, when I read their stuff, their articles, it's and I, I look at it and it actually hurts my head because <laughs> it's not like they have a... It's not biased in the sense that I think they're like left wing or right wing or that I think they're like pro CIA or anti CIA. It's like, I read their articles about the intelligence world and it's like, they're not even on planet earth. It's like, what the (laughs) fuck are you writing? Like this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it's almost as if the New York times has a willing intent to not be able to connect the dots. It's almost intentional. (laughs) And I, I think, I think part of it is because, so much of the stuff they publish is stuff the CIA wants out there and they want it out there on their terms. And they have journalists at the New York times who don't want to burn access. So they just, they, there's no critical thinking involved. They just kind of like put the, it's, it, it's basically a, a CIA press release, but it looks as if it's some sort of New York times investigative journalism or something like that. But anyway, that's my rant about the New York times, you know, good luck with you guys writing about, you know, the Bergdahl, uh, disinformation campaign. <laughs> if, if you, you have know. Me Yeah. If you need any help, you can give me a call, you know, hit me, <laughs> hit me up on Twitter. You know, we'll talk <laughs> at Jack Murphy, RGR. By the way, wait, since, yeah. Did, uh, either of you see, I called fucking Mattis, uh, secretary of state. <laughs> Who did you? Uh, I did. Um, uh, yeah, I got the internet roasted me alive, dude. <laughs> As your Freudian slip. Yeah. Well, I was. I did, it was the headliner. I just. I don't know why. I just had a brain fart and was like, oh, "Secretary of State Mattis, blah blah blah." Headline and. God damn it, Kurt. Dude. Yeah, I know. But that's the thing. No well, one caught it. Yeah. Okay. No, we, <laughs> we we make mistakes too. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. No question about it. But anyway, yeah, that was my mess up for the month. (laughs) 
Uh, so last thing I was going to mention is that you could see Kurt on uh, Inside the Team Room, the Peshmerga one. That's on Soft Rep TV. Uh, I also have the audio up. If you look up Inside the Team Room in your podcast app on Apple Podcasts, it's there. So check that out. You, you look very confused. Yeah, I'm trying. We did a Peshmerga Inside the Team Room. You did it inside yeah. the team room with him and uh, Joey. Joey, yeah. Oh, the one we did in Kirkuk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well no, it's, we were in, in Solomonia. We yeah, it's in Solomonia. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I just blanked that out because I did it abroad. It, I wasn't yeah. like in a bar here. In, uh, no, and it was also, you could even tell from the audio, it's not the quality of uh, yeah. like the full photo shoots. No, so it, that was, yeah, that why. was kind of like guerrilla style but, in the field. By the way, uh, Mentioning Joey, uh, it was funny. I I was gonna say because of your um, your interpreter story and teaching people bad English. So Joey and his crew, when they went over to Rojava um, to uh, join the YPG, they were there for a few months. Anyway, they taught all the Kurds because they were some of the first volunteers there. They taught all the Kurds in their Tabor that uh, uh, Taco Bello meant good night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they they all slept in like a big room with blankets and stuff you know and like in, as a group and like they'd be like everybody they'd be like taco bello and all the kurds around the room would go taco bello taco bello <laughs> yeah like, the the culture clash is hilarious man i remember watching um uh what movie was i watching with the iraqis one time in uh in, in uh Talafer? Uh, actually on fob sykes it, it might have been like uh that last rambo movie where he's in burma yeah. it, it was some movie like that or no, no, no. It was, um, oh shit. It, it was something like Die Hard where they're in America. And, okay. uh, one of the, uh, one of the Iraqi dudes turns to me, he's like, wow, America is really violent. Does stuff like this happen <laughs> often over there? And, and, you know, you look at him and you're like, well, not every day, you know, like maybe once a week, <laughs> something like that happens to me, you know? Dude, no, I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, got the, well, we had a PlayStation for a while and we gave it to some of our Kurdish instructors and um, <laughs> I forgot there's some zombie video game on there, but he's like playing it. And Dado, I remember that. He looks over me, goes, ah, good. He's like, in America, um, many zombies. <laughs> <laughs> so I turned to him, I was like, yeah, bro, when you get off that plane, you better be running. All right. Visa, passport, whatever. You <laughs> <laughs> there is um. Oh man, what I, and that now see you got me thinking. I, I need to put this in the book now. There was uh, I walked in on the on the Iraqi SWAT team one day that I was training, and they they were staying in these chews. They're like little cargo containers. Walk in there, and these dudes had pirated satellite TV. Like they figured <laughs> out how to do it. They pirated satellite TV, and they were watching the Penthouse Channel. And so the the SWAT team commander and a couple of the other like NCOs are sitting in this. They're hot boxing it. They don't smoke marijuana, but they're smoking cigarettes, like hot boxing the shit yeah, out of this yeah, container. Yeah, yeah. There's just cigarette smoke everywhere, and they're just sitting there staring at the penthouse channel and like nodding their heads, like yep, yep. And this girl is just like getting filled in by like a 12 inch dong. You know, it's like you, you. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine what's going on on the penthouse I channel. I can imagine, and. Uh, and they're like, oh, Mr. Jack, oh, Captain Jack, come in, come in. So I come in, I sit down, I'm watching the Penthouse channel with these dudes. And uh, they're like, I don't understand how Americans can fuck this long. Like, we can't fuck anywhere near this long. <laughs> and, you know, I play it off like, oh, well, you know, it's an it's a acquired skill, right? <laughs> we practice. <laughs> yeah, lots of practice. Oh, um, man. 
That's funny. Uh, the, actually, the funny, the funniest oh, oh yeah, and I, I almost forgot. And, and the other thing was a SWAT team commander looks over at me and just totally nonchalantly is like, "You know, these girls, they're just in it for the money." <laughs> <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, God damn, bro. How do you know so much about porn? Yeah, yeah. That was a very astute comment. Like, yeah, yeah. He, like, like he understood like the L.A. porn scene, like knew how it yeah. worked. Immediately. Like, wow. That's I mean, I don't think most most American teenagers had figured that out for a couple of years. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rack, Racky figured it out in a couple of minutes. Um, no, uh, when uh, so Justin, which I interviewed him. In an article was Joey's buddy, and they went over to Syria together. So they were sitting around eating. Yeah, there's one of those disconnects, and uh, the uh, they were given peaches, like canned peaches. So Justin looks at looks at the can. He goes, "Oh, peaches!" and like smiles. And but all the Kurds are like the men look kind of terrified. The women all look pissed. And he's like, "What? It's peaches!" And they look at they look like they're getting madder. And finally, the the guy who speaks a little bit is like, "No, no, no, no." There's no peaches. It's pe- he says this, patches. <laughs> and he's like, peaches means, and he, he basically told it means whore, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like prostitute or whatever. So he's standing there, sitting there in front of a bunch of YPJ, and he's like, oh, prostitutes. <laughs> Look Char- at the <laughs> Charmuta. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Charmuta. <laughs> uh, that's uh, yeah. What? That, no, it's uh. Mut, is muta ice cream? Which one's which one's mota? Mota is mota is ice cream. I don't, around like, around me, they would always say scream, and and, sure. I, and I get I get I start getting irritated with them because I'm like, what are you trying? I know my Arabic is bad, but I'm like, I, what are you trying to ask me? They kept saying Jack, scream, scream, and, and I realized cream. ice cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, mota means ice cream, but if you use it in the correct context, it also means like you're telling a dude he likes the cream. Oh. So yeah, it, could, it could be insulting or a, a actual just description. Um, yeah, especially the guys who went over there and they were hanging out around the, you know, the YPJ uh, female Kurdish soldiers, like got into some dicey situations, but purely because of like translation issues, you know. Yeah, the um, well, in Arabic, uh, dude means gay. So I was walking around in Iraq. I was like, what's up, dude? And people were looking at me like, what? <laughs> the hell you just called me? <laughs> the, the other uh, culturally significant thing you should probably know is they, they told me that um, giving someone the thumbs up over there is like the middle finger. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. No, I know that was in Afghanistan for sure. They warned us of that when we went over to Helmand. They were like straight up like, don't thumb up. Give people the thumbs up. It does not mean what you think it means. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think now they they've like everybody's got it. Like they've yeah, seen thumbs yeah. up symbols enough. Yeah, like they the, know the, we don't insult them. Like yeah, that. no, absolutely. Like the Iraqis that have been working with Americans, even like the guys I worked with. If I gave them the thumbs up, they wouldn't get offended by it. They understood. They'd been working around us long enough that you know they understand. Um, you know, and it's really funny when uh, you talk to like our interpreters, like I meet people over in Iraq who um, worked as interpreters for the Americans for a long time. And they're like so Americanized, they'll like come up to you and they'll be like, hey, dude, remember Rippets? And it's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, what have we created? Yeah, yeah. The monsters, they're literally deployment babies. Like, yeah, yeah. Whole, hey, bro. Education and they're, they're the all nostalgic for the past, you know, they're like like we are. They're like. Hey, bro, remember the Rippets? Yeah, they'll, they'll fit in with the vet community perfect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
The um, yeah, we had this one uh, terping in Kurdistan working for one of the companies, um, Bakhtiar, and uh, he's probably not listening, but I wish he was. He's a cool guy. He's still trying to get over here, but uh, yeah, he's like he was a uh, interpreter with uh, uh, you guys, the SF, and I was like, I was like, hey, dude. So like, what'd you do as a terp with the <laughs> with the special forces? And he goes, "We killed motherfuckers." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Right on." <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, man. I mean, some of our interpreters, like uh, some. I mean, it depends, like team to team, but like some ODAs are pretty rough to work with, you know. And like these terps, a lot of them develop like seriously thick skin, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, the uh, oh man, I forgot where I was going with that, but uh, yeah, <laughs> funny stuff. Oh, the captain thing because you said Captain Jack. Yeah. yeah, everybody, everybody calls you Captain now yep. if you show up in advisor role. Like even the Kurds, they just and I think it's a soccer th- or a football thing. They would say football. Well, we say for in our case, um, it's because in the Iraqi army and the Iraqi culture, like you're either an officer or you're nothing. So like if you're if you're not an officer, you're just some dude with a shovel that digs for four <laughs> years of his time in the military. Like an NC they're like, I don't know if they I mean, I guess they did have NCOs, but they're like nothing like sergeants are in the US military. No, no, no. Same with the Peshmerga. Yeah. I think you actually might, you know, if you were an officer in the Peshmerga, you were like, meh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, when we went over there, we all had to assume the fictional rank of captain just out of necessity. <laughs> and again, the these the SWAT guys had worked with us so long; they knew they knew that we weren't captains. Like at least the, their commanders and stuff, they knew that I was an NCO. You know, it didn't bother them. They 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 understood. Well, as long as they could understand, like at their level, that you knew more and knew enough to. <laughs> Yeah, no, they did. And they told me that, too. They're like, you know, a sergeant in, you know, U.S. Special Forces knows like 10 times more than an Iraqi officer. I was like, well, yeah, basically. I think we might have talked about this the last full episode you were on. But the story of you guys meeting is is pretty cool. You were telling me about uh, while we were over at SHOT Show. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, actually I uh, I was at um, one of my local gun stores the other day and uh, the guy was like, uh, he saw my T-shirt and he's like, "Do you read soft rep?" I'm like, no, I write for the man. And he's like, "Oh, sweet, I read you guys every morning." And he's he's like, "Well, where'd they like?" And I was he's like, "How'd you get that job?" And I'm like, "Well." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was I remember we joked at the, when we were at a shot show. It was like everybody's like everybody. I was like everybody else has like a master's degree in journalism. Jack pretty much just found me when I was homeless and wanted. Hey man, want a job? <laughs> Um, I was running around in the Peshmerga and we were in uh, Kirkuk or actually Dakuk, which is just south of it. Um, and we were taking two villages, which I believe the first one was Zagar. Um, and uh, it was a it was a very, really successful day for us because all we had to do was um, deal with IEDs, which uh, that was Jack brought up the point. Uh, what was it? Uh in-depth defense oh defense, defense in depth yeah thank you depth uh, defense in depth they were practicing that pretty much they you know there was some uh brief fighting at the beginning of the day but then everybody fucked off as far as isis goes and we just kept pushing so anyway we were sitting on the side of the road watching our t-55s blow by and blasting us with uh exhaust um and down down comes the street i see uh <laughs> Uh, Jack and Benny and some <laughs> other guy walking up. And I'm like, and I was sitting there with Joey and I'm like, Hey, I know this guy. What's up, man. And walked over and yeah, we hung out for a good part of the day. Then we shot off to go take the last village real quick. 
Um, and then we met up later at the uh, our basis training yeah. center. And I, I, Kurt and I had talked a little bit over uh, Facebook, I think. And we were trying to like arrange to meet each other because I was I was like, hey, Kurt, I'm in Iraq. Can we meet like face to face? And like, oh, yeah, cool. So like we were trying to facilitate that, and figure out how that was going to work out. And then meanwhile, we've uh, Benny and I find out there's this big battle going down in Kirkuk. We're like, we need to go there. So we rush down there. Uh, we take we're driving at like three in the morning from uh, Erbil down to Kirkuk. We get there. Um, the battle starts. At, that was that was when we were driving and. Sorry, our driver asks um, at a checkpoint, oh, <laughs> which way to the battle? And they're like, oh, just drive that way until you get to the dash, and you'll know you're there. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy fuck. And anyway, we get there, and um, it's really foggy that morning. As we got there, an IED went off like maybe 100 meters in front of us and killed a Peshmerga guy. And I remember you and Kurt talking was, about Yeah, Kurt was down the there. So anyway, me and uh, Benny, we're walking all through the morning right behind the uh, front lines of the Pesh. And I, if I remember correctly, you said you're completely unarmed. Yeah, I was completely unarmed. And you had a um, knife. yeah, I had, I, yeah, I had a karambit. I guess that would have helped. It's not going to do a whole lot against an yeah. IED. Um, <laughs> and, and as we're walking, yeah, I, I come up and uh, oh no, I ran into a Kurd who had been working with some American volunteers, and I got to talking about that, and he's like, "Oh yeah, American volunteer. Yeah, I have some here. You want to meet them?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." So he starts walking us further down the road a little bit, and there's Kurt and Joey sitting on the side of the road, and Kurt's like, hey, I know you. <laughs> so that's how we ended up meeting face-to-face. I didn't expect Kurt to be there. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, really small, small Kurdistan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, well, that'll, that'll definitely be in the book, obviously, but uh, when I get writing it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that IED that went off, so we were – it was Joey and I were down there and, uh, like, right in the blast, and for some reason – uh, we're lucky as shit. We never got hit, but like guys around us got hit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was funny. We were actually standing on the berm that blew up and then we, we got pulled back and the, uh, one of the bulldozers they used to do route clearance. It hit it and boom. <laughs> yeah. I, I got there like a couple minutes after that. Well, I think, I believe that when I walked down there, the, uh, the Peshmerga were actually moving in and starting to clear the houses in that little village right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, they, well, uh, and then I know there was that one kid who was wearing all Kurdish garb and shawal and stuff. Uh, he had a G3 and he was some other random volunteer. We didn't know. He just kind of showed up with another Kurd and he ran out in the field by himself and started shooting up our Peshmerga as they came into that village. Jeez. Yeah. And then of course the commander ran over and like screamed at him. They took his rifle and threw him out of the, you know, brought him back to the the staging area and kicked him out. You know, I also saw, um, as I came up there, there's like a Humvee full of, I, and I could see them right away. They were, uh, they were foreigners. They were Americans and they were all dressed up like Robin Sage role players. And they were wearing balaclavas and all that kind of shit. They're wearing the ski that, masks. And that would have been Sheikh Joffer's guys or his team of Mercandos. Yeah. Um, they seemed and, like a bunch uh, of goobers. Yeah. And they, they were like making cat calls at Benny and stuff like this. I'm like, dude, this is fucking amateur hour out here. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why they they were in the back in the in the rear with the trucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I got that impression. Yeah. That's the and that's the thing. Like the guy that ran out there and shot up a Peshmerga, like, or those dudes who were sitting around cat calling and stuff. And I mean 
that just makes it it's so much harder to be a volunteer, especially when you're trying to do it do it the right way and be serious about it. And like, because you got to remember, like, it's just like you know what we got. I don't know if they told you this in the army, but in the Marines, they're like, you don't represent you anymore. You represent the whole Marine Corps. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And it's the same thing with a volunteer. Like, you represent every American ever to these guys. Yeah. Or every foreign volunteer that comes over and tries to do this. So, like, when one person fucks up or you get the fraud artist, like that Alan Duncan cat or (laughs) whoever, yeah, that's what they think of you. And you have to work past that. It makes just more barriers. It's terrible. uh, Oh, man. I mean, you could – I know you and I know Irwin could tell stories all day about all the strange cats that showed up. Weirdos out the yin-yang. I never realized, like, how many weirdos showed up to this kind of party. Um, yeah, I, I guess us included, but still like, and I mean, you know, I wrote an article, like one of my first articles was like bitching about like, stop coming over here. Like if you're here for Instagram, you're wrong. <laughs> remember, like, remember that chick, what was her name? Like cat Argo or something like that. Oh I man. Cat Argo and the Quackum Basham, whatever. They yeah. Were. The French guy. He was like some crazy, like French right winger who, uh, he was in Ukraine with the separatists. Yeah. He, yes, with, that's what's weird too. With the he separatists, with the Russian separatists yep. as an ultra nationalist. Well, it um, makes sense in a certain. Well, there's a certain breed of these people, and they see Russia as being uh, confronting the, um, you know, like the new world order. So these like pe- there are people on the far right who are aligned with Russia, and that's the only way I can imagine that shook out. But I also heard from uh, some people who are in the military in the U.S. military with Cat Argo, and they were like, "That woman is a nut." Like, just stay away from her. Yeah. Well, I mean, they what, what caught me on to it was the stuff they were claiming they were doing, yeah. one, and then the stuff they had on their, like, GoFundMes and things like that. Well, and they're talking the, about doing deep behind enemy lines, extracting injured Peshmerga. They talked about weird techniques employed in Kirkuk of, like, daily catapults of propane tanks well, and the, shit. The, I'm like, the, Havoc, I'm like, the Havoc Journal wrote this, like, glowing article about about <laughs> so them. did the army times so did the yeah. army times and then there's there's I, I was just like you idiots never got on the ground with these people i will tell you everybody that's with them right now that isn't part of their group knows their fuckwads and Excuse then my french and yeah. then there was uh there's that other woman that showed up and she hooked up with the italian dude and she was over there for a while samantha J. yeah uh, you know, I don't think she was nearly as malicious as those other guys. No, she no, she kinda, wasn't. But she was no. definitely, uh, definitely there for the the fame. I yeah. think you know. And, uh, um, and and like there were other outlets that. I mean, if you're like a, a girl, especially if you're a pretty girl, I mean, like the Daily Mail and all of them, they're like oh, all yeah. over that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, she was posting like pics in her swimsuit and stuff. Yeah. And, like, yeah. You know, she had this big following. I, you know, maybe she had other reasons for going, but I don't. You know, I think she just wanted the fame, the glory ones. Like, look at me, I'm doing something. There. She was one of the. She was one of the army. Uh, the people coming out of the army who didn't do the whole war bit and felt they needed to maybe, and then went there with was, glory. There were some interesting women who showed up. Foreigners who showed up. Jill, Jill Rosenberg was the other one who was a big scam artist and got in a lot of trouble. I, yeah, I, I remember hearing about that. I, I mean, I, I heard rumors of some about some really bad stuff, but nothing that I know for a fact. She showed up to a uh, – we knew a contractor friend in her bill. We went down there for some R&R. So we were partying and we had a pool there, like a bunch of beer and – <laughs> Sounds like an SF party, huh, Jack? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I deny everything. 
Yeah, yeah, there you go. No, so anyway, she shows up with a fucking gun in her waistband and like in civvies, like, and we're like, what the fuck? And I like our guy who ran the owned the compound, he like wouldn't leave his M4 all night. He's like, dude, I don't, yeah. And uh, it was just a, it was weird. It was weird. There was also that Danish woman who showed up with the YPJ, and then she was like making claims that she had slain like a hundred oh. ISIS people when she was a sniper over there. And Joanna like, Polini. Polani, yeah. A liar, man. She ha- I, every she time, hates every me too because I wrote an article 100. telling saying that was bullshit. Yeah, man. I, every time I read, I this person was a sniper. I start, I to, I zone out. Yeah, like yeah, because literally we we had this joke in Ukraine. Like we were trying to decide who was going to do like the the little sniper course. Joey and I were going to go to, and uh, this guy, uh, one of the, one of the other uh, foreigners, he's like, well, and he I'll do the best accent I can. He's Greek. But he's like, well, Kurt here was a sniper with a Peshmerga, so. <laughs> and it, but it's it's funny because like everybody was a pe- sniper with a Peshmerga, you know what I mean? Everybody's like, a sniper. Everybody's an operator. You know, it's yeah. Everyone's it, it, yeah. my 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 running joke is it's the it's the uh, the Russian way of determining your sniper. Like, oh comrade, you have scope on the rifle. Now you're a sniper. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's in Iraq too. I mean, everyone's wearing the special forces patch. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Well, the Peshmerga, they're they, uh, uh, and I mean, they do have commando brigades, but everybody's wearing their red commando brigade. The beret. Cobras, right? Yeah, the Cobras. They're the Cobras are pretty good. They're like, the, well, here's the thing. So, like, you basically, it's just structured just like ours. If you really look at it. They have yeah. their uh, the CTGs and the the counter terror groups and things like that of either party, and they're like our you know SF Delta high speed dudes, and then these. Cobras and Third Special Brigades and things like that are like the Rangers to those units. They'll go in and do the big smash and direct action, take over villages, while these guys go hit the specifics. Because um, they usually do go in together uh, when they. Every time Third Brigade went in to do a village, or t- when we took Bashir, CTG was off on the left side doing their thing. Yeah, CTG complained about that when I was there. They were like, "We want to do counterterrorism, not this conventional fighting." But they they you know, felt obligated to play their part too. And, you know, help out. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, you read that article I wrote about how they, uh, they were doing the prison transports, closing down the, the old castle. That was interesting. Yeah, dude, they smoked a whole group of them. Apparently like, and this is kind of hearsay, but apparently they were like kitchen workers who were disgruntled about not getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like it wasn't even ISIS trying to snatch up their own prisoners. It was like some angry kitchen workers who staged an elaborate ambush. <laughs> that's, that's like such an Iraq story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very. People, people are always like, that could be, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, well, if you've been to Iraq, it makes perfect sense. Like, <laughs> that's the thing about, you know, war is, uh, you know, and I know I've said this before on the podcast is that, you know, people ask what the difference is between fact and fiction or, or writing fiction and writing nonfiction. I tell them, you know, fiction has to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. No shit. No, seriously. War is stranger than fiction every, every time. Like, yeah, people do shit that doesn't make any sense at all. It's irrational and things happen that are just random and weird. That's why I I said, if I I always said, like, I'm never writing a book. If I write a book, no one's going to fucking believe me. (laughs) Like, it's going to be, there's just, it's just wild. Like all, when I really look at all the weird things that have gone on and the strange stories and things I could go on about, like, it's just, it's bizarre. It's just 
fucking bizarre. Yeah, it's because like movies and television and all that has created like an expectation in the minds of civilians of like what war is supposed to be like. Yeah, and sure. Then, and then if reality doesn't deliver that expectation, they're like, oh, this must be fake. Can't be real. Uh, like Battlefield and Call of Duty and yeah. video games. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, because I mean, if you really look at like the. You know, it's like they, you know, even on like the, like say, I'm pretty big into the tactical shooting community. You see like the promo videos for companies and they look cool and they got their sweet plate carriers and their ops cores and they're sweeping corners and kicking doors and it all looks fluid and smooth. And then you look at a guy's GoPro footage or like even some of mine and it just looks like a, like a shit show. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it works and it's getting the job done and dudes are doing their shit. But it just does not look as clean, you know what I mean? Nowhere near as clean as the, you know, the media will make it out to be. Yeah, I mean, the guy who has the most kills is probably some specialist in the army that fucking has like a antiquated M sixteen A two out of the arms room. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're not going to hear that. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> So I think people are going to really look forward to this book. I have to say I had a great time hanging with Kurt at SHOT Show. He was the first person I saw getting off the plane and first time hanging with you. And we shared some awesome stories. Both both of us apparently diagnosed with ADD as kids. Maybe not surprising. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'm like hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were, I was, if I remember correctly, you were ADHD. I was ADD. So I was just like staring out the window. I was not like the hyperactive part. Oh, me? No, I, I have uh, ADD, maybe a little bit of ADHD. But oh, so mostly, then you were in yeah. the same, yeah, you were in the same category as me. No, I couldn't pay attention at school. I was a terrible student. College was hard as well, even though yep. I was a little more disciplined. But like, uh, but yeah, you stick me in front of something like I, I'm passionate about, whether it be, you know, what I've done recently or uh, um, we are writing for software. I'm getting to write about things that I love talking about. It's, you know. You know, uh, I'm in go. the exact same boat as you, which is what we were talking about before you even got there, Jack. It was like the first night we got in a whole discussion about this. And uh, the Odyssean was talking about his son having those same issues. Um, but, yeah, great having you on. we got to do this more often. If you're ever in New York, we'll do it in studio. Absolutely. Um, any, you don't have any social media, do you, other than your own like private Facebook page? Well, um, I am going to probably go on right now and finally get off my ass about this. I need to get uh, or get on your ass. You don't have to technically get off your ass to make a social media, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, but I need, yeah, I do need to do a, a writer's Facebook page where you can just follow me or something. Yeah, you should do it. Get a Twitter account so you can tweet about fucking memos and collusion all day, like everybody else on there. Uh, I don't. Uh, maybe I'll get an Instagram. I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest. I haven't followed the memo stuff at all. And people come over and, and they're like, "What do you think about the memo?" And I'm like, "I'm completely in the dark about it's it." A, it's a memo about a dossier that we all knew was fake the second we saw it. Like, Jesus. Yeah, I I have not been following, but it's because I don't watch the mainstream media. I mean, what I see, what I see on Twitter, but I kind of avoid. Yeah, a lot of Twitter it. Twitter is just such a cesspool. It yeah, seems but it's like something I don't want to jump into. <laughs> but I will say scrolling through Twitter for like 15 minutes, you're going to get what's covered on Fox for several hours or any network. I'm not targeting Fox. Yeah. You know, because all you're going to get is people debating the issue before you even know what the issue is. I've talked about it before. But yeah, I mean, I use Twitter to get a lot of my news. Not going to lie. Really? Yeah, I, I just I see what people are talking about. I mean, I don't take it if it's from the Daily Mail. I don't take it as fact. But I at least like to get a uh, 
I don't know, get an overview of what people are talking about. Twitter just seems to me like it's a lot of people trying really hard to convince everybody (laughs) that they're an expert on some given subject. You know, I'm the subject matter expert, and it just comes across as kind of like desperate and sad. It's like, why? What's What's the point of this? What's the point of this communications medium? What it's also it created so much phony outrage. I mean, I think the whole oh, yeah. like, Me Too movement is probably more Twitter than anything else. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, I, I saw like Ben Shapiro debating this on Fox. Um, I was watching a clip of that. But how it went from a guy like Harvey Weinstein, who obviously is out of control yeah. and, and should be in prison, to a guy like Aziz Ansari, where it's just like, was this date... I had a bad date, yeah. Part part of the thing the woman wrote was that that she didn't like that Aziz Ansari picked red wine over white wine. Yeah. And I I was just like, is this really... Could you really put this in the same category as Harvey Weinstein? Yeah, I I think Sounds like you just regretted sleeping with this guy. That's what it felt like to me, too. And, yeah, I think that whole thing died when that article was published. Yeah. It was like reading this, like, I felt uncomfortable, but I didn't say anything. (laughs) What? Yeah, it really does a disservice. it's weird that Twitter, like, tweets alone are being, like, one of the source of, like, all these articles that are flooding us yeah. now. Yeah, Like, literally, someone tweets something. It's like, we could write a whole article about this. Like, it's, yeah, it's How bizarre. about the, the night of the Super Bowl? The number one thing trending part of that night was that Kylie Jenner had a baby over the Super Bowl. Really? Yeah. More Americans care about that. Uh, I wonder what, what was hell? what were the ratings for the Super Bowl like? Because I don't care anyway. But um, yeah. were people? Is it true that like people are kind of tuning out of the NFL now because of their whole issues with patriotic, uh, you know, thing things? I think a lot of those people tuned out for the season, but then they'll still if they're a football fan, they're probably still going to watch the Super Bowl. I would think. I do know the NFL didn't allow an ad like a veteran-run group ad that said, you know, please stand. And they said it was too political. They wouldn't run it. Huh. Which I I do think is bullshit, regardless of, like, your feeling on the issue itself. Because you and I, we've talked about this. It's definitely not a priority in my mind. But the fact that, like, they're allowed to kneel for the national anthem, but they weren't allowed to put on a patch for, like, a police officer who died. Like, you're either going to politicize it or or not politicize it at all. You know, so... Yeah, I don't fucking care myself, but whatever. I, I think Vince McMahon is probably doing a smart thing by saying he's coming out with the XFL. Didn't he already try that once? Yeah, he's doing it again. Really? <laughs> yeah, because this is perfect timing with all the politicization and all the people saying, like, I'm not going to watch. I bet you Vince McMahon is going to be like, we're going to have hot, skippy cheerleaders. You're probably going to need to stand for the national anthem. He'll probably have Donald Trump be involved somehow. I'd wa- I'd rather watch that. Yeah, why not? But yeah, no, he did do it one season and failed. There was a great 30 for 30 on it. But I bet you he sees it. I talked about it on the episode with Steve Alistieri. I'm not like a football fan, but he probably sees a big opening in the marketplace with all this protesting, all this politicization, and he'll probably just be like, I'm going to do what men want to see, not politicize shit. Between that and TBI... It seems like the NFL is oh, yeah. they're heading in a bad direction. Like like I would not buy stock in the NFL, I'll put it that way. 
Yeah, I, I think also a lot of it is the media when they say that, um, you know, NFL ratings are going down. I think it, it's sports in general. I think people are even watching less TV in general. Yeah, The yeah. internet is taking over. Because who wants to sit and watch all these ads and all this bullshit on there? Yeah, I, I also, um, you know, there's a lot of people I feel like my dad's age who will watch every single Met yeah, game, yeah. every single Nick, Nick game. Even sports fanatics my age, like, I, I don't think but, you see like, much I, of that. I would rather just, like, spend a night watching YouTube videos <laughs> than watching television, like, cable TV. Like, who watches that? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much what I do anyway, actually. <laughs> yeah. Especially the show on Tesla. Who watches that? It's terrible. Yeah, apparently nobody <laughs> because they fucking moved it to the Science Channel. I didn't. I didn't even. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. I didn't even know there was a science channel. Yeah, nobody does. They. Uh, they like the problem, dude. They like sabotage that show because they. Um, and for those who don't pick up on the sarcasm, I'm obviously joking that you know about the you show. Man. <laughs> it's it five five episodes. <laughs> they played the first three. Episode four, they changed the time slot. Episode five, they changed the time slot and the network. That's not a good sign. Yeah. And, well, they told me the first episode did great. They're like, we did, we beat everything in ratings except for, uh, except for professional sports, which is like, we're never going to beat that. Yeah. But then something happened between then and now. And, and I, I feel like they never even gave the show a chance. They also, like I've said in the past, like their advertising, um, approach is like in the stone age. They're acting like it's still 1987. I mean, I'm shocked by how bad they are when it comes to advertising. Yeah. So, whatever. It's they need what, to get uh, the advertisement that Kurt and I were talking about with uh, Tonto and those sunglasses. Oh, I see that ad. On, I saw that ad on uh, on the TV when I had lunch with Jim. Um, I see it all the time now. Wednesday, yeah. I was at the gym. Dude, I was like, holy shit, it's he's Chris. He's slaying it as far as the marketing department. But I almost, man, I saw him at range day at Shot, and I was just like... Yeah, I was going to be like, hey, Tonto, I see you wearing them HD sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know how I do you, you, you should go, say, you should go say like hi to him, though. He, Chris is a he's a really nice guy. Oh, no, I did say hi to him. Yeah. He is a phenomenally nice down to earth guy. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. like every, I met a few. Well, I ran, didn't say I met, but I noticed quite a few. Uh, so we say tactical celebrities at SHOT Show and a lot of them have big egos and just um, yeah, but, uh, it, Chris was just, man, he was awesome. Uh, really nice guy. He took the time to bullshit with, uh, two of our loadout room writers who were in second bat as well in the Rangers. Yep. So, um, yeah, I'd love really to, nice guy. I'd love to have him back on the show when he comes through town again sometime. Yeah. Really cool guy. I'm sure he will. He does. And he does so many of these speaking engagements and all. But yeah, that, that, that sunglasses commercial is pretty funny, <laughs> <laughs> but Hey, he's, I can't, uh, you know, I can't knock it. He's making money. So, Hey dude, pays the bills. So be it, you know? Damn yeah. right. Damn right. And I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen the sunglasses themselves, so I don't know how they are. I'm not going to say anything negative. Get me, a, get me a commercial. Sign me up, baby. I'll do that commercial today. <laughs> dude, yeah, exactly. I'll wear the, the rapper Bard sunglasses, like the Kanye West sunglasses if you pay me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the ones that don't even have lenses. Like. <laughs> and, and in the commercial, you'll say, like, this is exactly what I wear when fighting ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, if you want, you got to block out those negatory peripheral zones with these bars. They're tactical. <laughs> like, yeah, like, just make up some trigger words and helps you shoot 1000% better. 
<laughs> what was it? 80% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> Order now, and it comes with a free ISIS hunting permit. <laughs> People do dig the ISIS hunting permit. I see it all the time. I see it on cars all the time. And usually it will be like a Trump sticker, NRA sticker, ISIS hunting Hot dogs. Permit. Get your hot dogs. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks as always, Kurt, and we'll, we'll definitely have you back soon. All right. Thank you, guys. It's been good talking with you. Thanks, man. So as a reminder for all of those who are listening for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to SoftRep TV, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. SoftRep TV's premier show training cell follows former special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV at softreptv.us and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. And on there, although you forgot about it, is the Peshmerga Inside the Team Room, which Kurt is on. So, so I'm told. Yes, you could check that out on Soft Rep TV. And like I said, if you want to just hear the audio, that's actually up on our Inside the Team Room um, channel. Uh, I have all the audio stripped. And, and people were actually have commented before. They're like, why does the audio suck on this one? Well, we didn't have like a full camera staff there. It wasn't Nick Cahill and Drew Wallace. It was me and a camera and, a, and like one external mic. Yeah. I and mean, it was, yeah. It you, was, you made it work though. It, it was, it was in the field improvised, but I mean, it, there's some really cool stuff in there. It's, you know, me and Kurt and Joey talking about being a foreign volunteer in this war overseas. You know, it's like modern day, you know, you know, the Americans who went and volunteered in the Spanish Civil War or something like that. Or, you know, you think about like Con- Congo mercenaries or something, yeah. you know. So, I mean, I think it's interesting. And I should throw out there Joey, not to be confused by Joey L, who's been on the podcast. Yeah, no, the Joey L is a photographer. We're talking about a different Joey. Yeah. Who was uh, Kurt's friend that was over there in Kurdistan with him. And uh, if you watch it, if you if you watch it on Software TV, Kurt is the guy with the gun tattoo on his arm. So you know he doesn't fuck around. It's true, man. He has a, yeah, yeah, Kalashnikov, right? Yeah, you got to be a badass to do that. Um, so, it, and also, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the Software Crate Club, you're definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription. Get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker: all of the gear is handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're going to get quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Crates we've sent in the past have included gear like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, and other kick-ass stuff. You don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company. To subscribe and start getting your gear, visit crateclub.us. We also have gift options available. That's crateclub.us. A lot of great stuff coming for the Crate Club. I know Scott Whitner has been hard at work. And next episode, we have Shannon Miller coming on, who's, uh, I'm apparently not supposed to say exactly where, but has worked at several alphabet agencies and uh, is in the intelligence field. We'll be able to talk about uh, Korea, right? Yeah, I definitely think we'll talk about North Korea um, and a colleague of uh, James Powell. So we're excited for that. That's the next episode. And uh, a lot of other great stuff coming up, including Jack Devine in studio this time. Yeah, I honestly think between um, Mike Vining and 
Jack uh, Devine. Those were two of the best episodes that we've done recently. So I'm, I'm just excited to have Jack Devine back in studio. Well, in studio this time for the first time. Um, and then you also have uh, Foxtrot and Kandahar uh, in, on the desk in front of us because Dwayne Evans will be on yeah, soon. That's going to be a great interview, I think. Yeah. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, I got to get Pat McNamara on here. I've gotten so many people say, get Pat Mac- McNamara on. Uh, Jason Everman, you said we'll be able to have on at some I, I point, th- hopefully. Yeah, I think so. Um, That's been a big request. Yeah, in the future. I'm going to try to line that up. And um, can't promise Pat uh, Macman- McNamara. I'm yeah. sorry. He's a great dude. Um, but I'll ask the question. We'll see if uh, he's interested. Yeah. The Odyssean does a very good impression of him. Of <laughs> Pat <Bad laughs> McNamara. Yeah. He was doing it in the car with us. It was really, really I, I good. would not do a Pat McNamara impression. I, I met Pat in a bar once in North Carolina. Uh, super nice guy. But that guy could pick me up and, like, body slam me into the ceiling. Yeah. He, he looks huge. Yeah. You know, he's I mean, he's not that tall. But, yeah, he's like. Jack. Yeah. He's, he's a big guy. Nice. I would not want to meet Pat <laughs> in a dark alley. I, yeah. I would put him into the same category as like Jim West. Like, do uh, just don't do it. Just don't fuck with that guy. Don't do it. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at softreprepradio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.